here. I'm excited about tonight. We are in Isaiah chapter 53 tonight. If you um, need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen will get one right to your seat. You can follow along with us. We're going to cover Isaiah 53 and 54 this evening. Something about this corner of the room over there is kind of rowdy all the time. I'm not mentioning names, James. It was really quiet. (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity tonight, Lord, to be in your word and really a special place in your word, Father. And we thank you of your love to us so much, Lord, that you'd show us in your word what would take place some 700 years later. Lord, before it even took place and specifically spell it out for us. Lord, you are such an amazing God. And we thank you for this time. Lord, we pray your blessing on it. Lord, I noticed a lot of kids went down for the youth tonight. Lord, we pray your blessing upon them. Just speak through uh, Gabe as he shares with them, Lord God. And uh, your words would just touch their hearts. We pray that for all the kids that are downstairs being ministered to, Lord God, that uh, Lord, that even at a young age, Lord, they just come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. So bless our time, we pray, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm pretty excited about tonight because uh, these chapters contain indisputable, undeniable proof that God is the author of Scripture and Jesus is the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. I mean, if you've never studied Isaiah 53 before, I think you probably all have, but it's it's great just to, to dig into this again because we see the details of Jesus' death and, and suffering, there's just so incredible that no human being could have predicted them or, or by chance had, you know, all just happened to fit into place. Well, yeah, just everything happened in that way. But chapter 53 is one of the richest and the most unmistakable prophecies in the entire Old Testament of, of, of Jesus' death and, and the, the suffering he went through. It's right up there with Psalm 22. Again, 700 years before Christ was even born, Isaiah lets us see something of Christ's suffering that you'll not find any place else in Scripture. Now let me say this before we get to verse 1. When the Bible was originally written, it did not contain chapters or, or verse references. The Bible was divided into chapters and verses to help us find Scriptures more quickly and easily. It's much easier to find John 3.16 than to find, For God so loved the world. Okay, where's that? Well, in a few places, the chapters and the breaks, they kind of got wrong. They placed them in the wrong place, and as a result, the content doesn't really flow together. Such is the case here in Isaiah chapter 53. It actually should start back in chapter 52, starting in verse 13. So that's what we're going to do before we get to chapter 53. Go back to verse 13 of chapter 52, because it just flows together. Look at verse 13 now in chapter 52. We read, Behold my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Now that Hebrew word translated extolled means literally lifted up. Now this is the only place in the Old Testament where this word is used, and it, and it was it happened to be the same word that was picked by Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 32, when he said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So this is clearly speaking of, of Jesus Christ and being lifted up to the cross. And, and John clarifies that statement in John 12, when he says that the Lord said this concerning the manner of his death. 
So when Jesus was talking about being lifted up, he wasn't talking about being lifted up in praise and worship, though we love to do that. What Jesus was talking about was being lifted up upon the cross. So Isaiah goes on now, verse 14, to describe just that. It says, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now, Isaiah will speak more of what, what the Lord suffered as we go along. But here he says that when the people looked at him, they were startled because he's been so disfigured by what was done to him. He was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us when you think about what Jesus went through. And the soldiers blindfolding him and then punching him repeatedly in the face and, and taunting him to prophesy who had hit him. We look back in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Where Isaiah prophesied, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now imagine a face, the, the beard actually being plucked from a, a person's face and the, and the swollenness and, and the redness of this on top of uh, being slugged in, in the face. He was marred more than any man. Now here's what's interesting. Over in Revelation chapter 5, we're told that when we see Jesus, We'll look at him as a lamb who had been slain. In other words, it's quite possible that we're going to see the Lord in his slain condition. Think about Jesus' resurrected body. And Thomas there in the upper room. You know, if I can't touch his hands and, and put my hand in his side, then I won't believe. And, and Jesus appeared and, and said, here, touch, look, and see. Those scars, those marks were there uh, on Jesus. And I believe that when we see Jesus face to face and we see Jesus that way, we'll truly understand the price that he paid for our sin. Well, he goes on, look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see. And what they had not heard they shall consider. Now, sprinkling was was a practice that was done for cleansing. And they used oil or, or, or blood or, or, or water. It was a cleansing for conse- consecration. And I believe this is speaking of, of Jesus', uh, you know, uh, the, the sprinkling, the, the shedding of his blood, uh, cleansing us from our sin. Uh, I mean, and, and, and what Jesus would do for those who come to him. Isaiah says, kings shall shut their mouths. In other words, when you see Jesus face to face, you're not going to have anything to say. I don't care if you're a king or, or, or you know, a, a, a president or anything. I, I mean, there's nothing to say. You know, his glory and his great work will stop every word. Okay, now chapter 53, look at verse 1. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah is saying, believe it or not, what I'm about to say to you is absolutely true. Now he says, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. The arm of the Lord, remember, we looked at last time, is the title of Jesus Christ. So he goes on, talking of Jesus, of Jesus he says in verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of, a dry, out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. See, like all of us, Jesus moved from childhood to adulthood the same way we did. One day at a time. Jesus was a toddler. You know, he, he grew, got a little bit bigger, you know, four, five, six years old. You know, ten years old, he was a teenager, you know. And, and even though there's all this folklore about, you know, Jesus' early life. Oh, oh, he grabbed some mud and he formed a bird and he breathed on it and the bird flew away. It's, it's just folklore. I mean, we read in Isaiah, you know, 
He grew up as a tender plant. We see there's no beauty that we should desire him. I mean, no former comeliness. There was nothing special physically about Jesus. Jesus grew up, just grew up. In fact, Luke says concerning Jesus in Luke 2.40 that the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. So Jesus didn't walk around with his glow, you know, all the time, you know, two feet off the ground. Oh, and Jesus, you know, no. Just, he worked, you know. He, you know, he, he worked for his stepfather, Joseph. There's no former comeliness. I think he was an average-looking guy. In fact, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, the crowds all gathered together. And what did they say? They said, who is this? Matthew 21. Later that same week, when he was about to be arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, you know, Judas is leading his, his gang there, you know, to, to the group of 12 Jewish men. They all looked somewhat similar. And Judas didn't say, hey, look for the guy that's glowing that stands about three feet off the ground. No. He says, whomever I kiss, he's the one sees him. Again, there's nothing about Jesus' physical body that would make him stand out. Next, Isaiah prophesies about Jesus' reaction from the people. Look at verse 3. We read, He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. If you've ever looked at something that was so shocking, you, you couldn't look. You had to turn away. It was so horrible. You know, that's a picture that we see here, you know, and it may be our first response when we see the marks of the suffering that Jesus bore for us. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And Jesus, he was no stranger to grief. He was no stranger to sorrow. I mean, his soul, if you recall, was deeply grieved there in the garden right before his death as he sweat great drops of, of blood. But he bore our griefs. He bore our sorrows. Listen, sin brings grief. Sin does bring sorrow. And Jesus bore it all. He took it all. As God poured out our punishment onto His Son, He was stricken, smitten, afflicted by God. God allowed this to happen for us. Jesus allowed this to happen for us. Look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Now, when we read, by his stripes we are healed, I, I believe what, what this is saying is that when Jesus took those stripes on his back, he took them to heal us from the wages of sin. He was wounded for my sin, wounded for your sin, bruised for our iniquities. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But by allowing himself to be scourged, Jesus opened up the door for us to be healed from the disease of sin. But I also believe that as we by faith look to what Jesus did for us upon the cross, it's that same faith in our God that can bring about a physical healing as well. If God desires to heal, and that's something that is God's plan for your life, uh, it's because of the stripes, the pain, the suffering that Jesus went through for us. Because, verse 6, it says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that how we were before we came to Christ? We all turned away. We were all just sinning. We all fell short. We were going our own direction, doing our own thing. That's why Jesus had to come to rescue us from ourselves. 
The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sinful thing we've ever done or will do was laid upon Jesus. That to me is why in our daily living, we really don't want to add one more sin that Jesus had to die for. Not that we can become sinless, but but the realization of what Jesus has done for us certainly inspires us to want to live holy lives before him. Now verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now I love the fact that this is the very same verse that was being read out loud by the Ethiopian eunuch there in Acts chapter 6. Remember the story? Philip had been ministering in Jerusalem. Ministry was going great. Things were happening. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appears to Philip and says in in Acts 8.26, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert. So he arose and went. So Philip goes his way. And on his way, he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch who was reading verse 7 here out loud of Isaiah 53. And Philip, you know, he's come running up, hey, 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 do you know what you're reading? You know, do you understand what's going on? And, 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 you know, since the eunuch didn't, he invites Philip up to his chariot and they go for a ride. In Acts 8, 34 and 35, the Ethiopian asked Philip, please tell me of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began from the scriptures, he preached Jesus to him. I love that. Philip preached Jesus to him. Not Judaism, not denominationalism, not water baptism. He preached Jesus. Philip recognized uh, this opportunity before him. Philip was familiar with Isaiah 53. He was familiar with the fact that this was a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, that he was a sheep led to the slaughter, that as a lamb before his shears, he did not open up his mouth. Speaking of Jesus Christ, now, what I find interesting is that this Ethiopian eunuch had a copy of Isaiah. They didn't have printing presses back then. A scroll of Isaiah would have, have cost a lot of money. To have a personal copy of Isaiah was a, a treasure. On top of that, to be reading Isaiah 53, assessing a scripture that, that speaks in prophetic terms more clearly of the Lord's death and suffering for, for mankind than any other place. And no doubt then, then Philip suddenly appearing before him. And, and no doubt Philip explained that there's no such thing as coincidences with God. I mean, look at all these things that are happening here. Again, Philip could say, this indeed speaks of, of Jesus. And God has a plan and a purpose for, for his life. And you need to come to know Jesus Christ. And he did. And he was baptized that same day. You know what this tells me? Philip was ready to give every man an answer for the hope that lies within him. Philip was ready. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a work who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Philip knew the word of God. He was able to respond immediately to the Ethiopian. This was an opportunity that Philip could, could, could take. Philip was prepared, and this Ethiopian came to know Christ. And so as we continue to study God's word, if the Lord should bring an Ethiopian eunuch in your path, reading Isaiah 53... You'll know exactly how to answer him. One more thing. When Isaiah says, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You know, Jesus didn't defend himself. Remember when he was standing before Pilate? Pilate got a little frustrated with him and, and, and uh, marveled that Jesus didn't answer. Now, Jesus could have very, e- very easily have answered. 
He could have called a legion of, of angels down to, to, to come and wipe out Pilate and all his, his accusers, but that's not why Jesus came. He was on a mission to save us as a lamb that was, you know, before the shearer, so he opened not his mouth. Look at verse 8. It goes on. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read this word, what, what sticks out to me was that he was cut off. And, and they thought, that kind of clicked in my head. And I thought, I thought Daniel chapter 9. Remember Daniel chapter 9, the prophecies of the 70 weeks of Daniel? It says there in chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So, so Jesus was, was cut off, not for himself, but for you and, my, you and I. It's a 69 weeks of Daniel, you know, and, and, and so there's, there's, there, we know there's one more seven-year period, one more week that God will deal with the Jewish people, the seven-year Great Tribulation period. But Isaiah is kind of, he's even mentioning that. It says he was cut off from the land of the living. Now, everyone witnessed Jesus' death on the cross. They knew that he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, everyone thought he was permanently dead. And why wouldn't they? Everyone who seems to die seems to die permanently, that, that, that we know. But, but Jesus wasn't permanently dead. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Yes, he died, but he was buried in a tomb and was raised from the dead on the third day. And God clarifies for us the reason Jesus was killed. Not because of something he did wrong, but because of the sins of the people. Again, verse 8, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Then verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. I mean, just when you think that prophecy can't get any more specific, it confronts us with even more amazing details. We know that Jesus was crucified between two thieves, one on either side of him. He died with the wicked. And after he died, he was, he was, a, it was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea who, who gathered up enough courage to go to Pilate to request Jesus' body. And there we know that, that Joseph of Arimathea placed uh, Jesus' body in the rich man's tomb. You know, and we believe that maybe Nicodemus was with him as well. They took Jesus down off the cross and, and, and placed him in that tomb. But again, Isaiah goes on to say, I want you to understand there, there's no wrongdoing that Jesus did. Jesus was innocent. He had, no done, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. You know, Peter quotes this as well. In, the, in uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 22, Peter says, speaking of Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He goes on, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So Peter, in his mind, goes back to Isaiah 53 and says the same thing. Again, Jesus did not die for anything he did. He was completely sinless. The Bible tells us over and over again that Jesus never sinned. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was truly the sinless of God. Now look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall, seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, by my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Verse 10, we read that Jesus gave himself as an offering to sin. Now this would be uh, the, the guilt offering. Now to the Jews who grew up making guilt offerings at the temple, they would know what this meant. They wouldn't need an explanation. But, but I think we might need a little bit of an explanation for this. You see, God commanded the guilt offering in the book of Leviticus to the Jewish people. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 15, it says there, If one of you commits a sin by unintentionally defiling the Lord's sacred property, you must bring a guilt offering to the Lord. Then Leviticus 5.16 goes on to say, You must make restitution for the sacred property you have harmed by paying for the loss. He goes on in in Leviticus 5.17, Suppose you sin by violating one of the Lord's commands. Even if you're unaware of what you have done, you are guilty. You'll be punished for your sin. And the result, again, is Leviticus 5.18. For a guilt offering, you must bring to the priest your own ram with no defects, or you may buy one of equal value. Through this process, the priest will purify you from your unintentional sin, making you right with the Lord, and you will be forgiven. This is a guilt offering, for you have been guilty of an offense against the Lord. And as you read on into, into Leviticus chapter 6 about the guilt offering, you find out that its purpose was to make restitution for sin that was committed because of unfaithfulness, because of, of deception, of robbery, of lying, of extortion, to bring reconciliation before God and before men. And so here we see Jesus is that offering. He offered himself as a, as a sacrifice for our sin. He made his soul an offering for my sin, for your sin. And again, Isaiah is telling us this some 700 years before Jesus was even born. And it says that, that uh, 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 he says, and he shall see that, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge, by my righteous service, shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 11. The Lord looked at Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross and said, it is good enough. It, it is finished. It is, it is enough to save us from our own sin. Now, what a radical chapter that was. I, I mean, just amazing to me to read that, to see what detail that God has for us. It just shows how great our God is. Now we get to Isaiah chapter 54. Now, as we approach chapter 54, God turns his attention back to the Jewish people. And throughout the Bible, Israel is referred to as the wife of Jehovah. And we're going to see a picture of that again here in chapter 54. Look at verse 1 now. Isaiah writes, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry out loud, you have not labored with a child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Now, there are times in the book of Isaiah, where it's hard to, to tell if God is prophesying about the return uh, from Babylon for the Jewish people or the millennial reign uh, kingdom. 
And I think before we're too far into this chapter, I think we come to the conclusion that these promises are really fulfilled completely during the millennial reign of Christ. But there are also principles of God's character and ways of doing things that apply to us here and now. Isaiah, again, look, look at verse 1. It starts out with, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry out loud. Now, if you've ever been close to a couple that were unsuccessfully trying to conceive children, you probably know how devastating it is for them and, and how tough it is. But for a Jewish woman, this devastation was multiplied many times over. To be able to have children was considered a blessing from God, and so barrenness was viewed as a reproach. The Jews' entire culture, their history, their identity, and their property centered on this generational line where you came from. So here God is using a metaphor, a figure of speech to describe that even though the population of the Jews would be very small at the end of the Babylonian captivity, God would one day bless them so radically that their population would spread out to occupy not only the cities now abandoned, but also all the surrounding nations. So God is saying here, get excited about this. Get, uh, here's an anticipation of a blessing. Get ready. He says, enlarge your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains for your dwellings. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. In other words, get prepared for a blessing because it's a done deal. I mean, if you really, truly believe God's going to bless you with babies, then get the baby's room ready, he's saying. If you're anticipating God's going to come through with some, you know, something really big, then, then get ready for it today. Enlarge your tent in anticipation. Be prepared for God's blessing to happen. Now, I think that this also speaks of the great things that, that, that God can do in three different ways. That God's doing, I think, number one, in our church corporately. I mean, get ready. God wants to do some, some great things. I believe the property that God has given to us, and I've talked about this a little bit on Wednesday nights, um, not on Sunday morning yet, but, but you guys get, get in on it because you're Wednesday night folks. But um, probably in a month or so, I'm going to get a, a picture of, of, of the property and the vision that God has for us, and we'll present it on, on, on Sunday morning, hopefully, and, and, and get the whole church behind us. But you guys, you know, I, I believe that God is, is really preparing us for something great over there. And I'm excited about it, and, and, uh, and it's going to be a blessing. So I believe that these verses can speak about us as a church corporately. But I also think they can speak to us personally. That we never should, you know, we, or we never do say, stay in the same place spiritually. We're, we're stretching the curtain, as it says here. We're lengthening the cords, driving deeper the stakes in our own lives. Or we're shrinking and diminishing and we're shriveling up. I mean, think about this. Where were you at a year ago uh, with, with your walk with the Lord? Are you more active with the things of God, more in love with Him, more engaged in His Word, more involved in His service? Or have you gone the other way? Has it begun to diminish? Isaiah is saying, hey, get ready for God to do great things personally. So I think this speaks to us as a church corporately, as believers personally, but also this speaks prophetically as well. Again, in verse 3, it says, For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Now listen to what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 27. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. So Paul is quoting Isaiah 53 here. You know, or actually 54 here, a prophecy given concerning the Gentiles. You see, throughout the Bible, Israel is referred to as the wife of Jehovah. But here God is saying that someone will come on the scene, who, although it was previously barren, will become more prolific and bear more children than the wife of Jehovah. Who's that? That's the bride of Christ. It's the church. It's us. 
Enlarge the tent, the Lord declares, because I'm going to bring in a whole new group of people, the Gentiles. Therefore, you who are desolate and barren, sing and make a joyful noise in anticipation of what I'm going to do. And we just see it in all different ways. Now, be excited about what God is doing, what God has done, and what God will do. He goes on in verses 4 and 5. He says, Do not fear, for you'll not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you'll not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth, and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. That's beautiful. Now in that culture, it was almost just as shameful to be a widow as it was to be childless. Both, you know, they looked at people as being judged by God or having a lack of favor from Him at the very least. Now that's not the case now, uh, of course, but... You know, and then also Israel's exile to Babylon wasn't just difficult and painful because of the death and conquering that, that happened. It was also shameful because it was publicly humiliating. And he said, do not fear for you will not be ashamed any, anymore. God continues to reassure them that they'll be restored, that they're not widowed, that they'll not remain childless. I love that, that Isaiah says, your, your maker is your husband. God is, is their husband, their redeemer. Of course, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the principle always applies. You know, there may be times when we're humiliated and ashamed and disgraced. But then God will bring us into a new season where the shame is forgotten and reproach is no longer remembered. I think this is something that we need to remember also when faced with times of barrenness, times of aloneness. God is your husband. He's your, ma- your maker is your husband. He, he's there in the role of a husband to, to provide for, for and take care of his family, his church. You're never alone. No matter what you're going through, God is there. Verses 6 to 10, we read, For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah will no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. God is not done with the Jewish people, period. And here God is acknowledging that, his, his, yes, his Jewish people were shamed because of the, the, their, their shameful behavior. And though it may appear that he was forsaking them to Babylon, but it was just as, as punishment. It wasn't for destruction. God's covenant promises still applies to Israel. And he continued to love his people, the Jewish people. And he's likening this to the days of Noah when God brought judgment, but not for the purpose of totally wiping out everybody. Yes, he was angry during the days of Genesis chapter 6, but he made careful care to preserve Noah and his family. And the waters covered the earth, but they would eventually recede. And at the end of it all, he promised to never flood the earth again. In the same way, he's reassuring the Jewish people that no matter how bad things look, he is going to be merciful to them. And he'll always keep his promises. And the promises he's reminding them of is, is a peaceful promise for their future. It's that, that covenant that says in the millennium, they won't even have to worry about wild animals, much less enemies of nations. 
The covenant that he's speaking of here, uh, it's spoken of in Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34.25 says this, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. This is the millennial reign of Christ God's talking about. Now, he's already, Isaiah's already told us much about that time, uh, but let me just read chapter 11, verse 6 through 9 again of Isaiah, where it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatting together, battling together, and the little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, the young one shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall Weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, in, in my mind, I can't picture that. You know, I, I just, you know, when, when he restores the earth and, as it was before the flood there in the Garden of Eden, an 18-month-old playing by a hole in the ground full of cobras, that doesn't seem safe to me. You know? Uh, or a four-year-old playing in a, in a viper's den. But God says He's going to restore all things. As weird as it sounds, it's going to be absolutely incredible. Lord goes on, look at verse 11 and 12. Oh, you afflicted ones, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. Now, at first, this sounds like God is figuratively speaking about how He's going to re- restore the Jews and just, just pour in them blessing after blessing. But think about Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 speaks about the new Jerusalem. And it speaks about, uh, you know, the description of it fits right here with what is we just read in verses 11 and 12. Listen to the description in Revelation 21, verse 18 through 20 of the New Jerusalem. John writes, The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophrase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. And so you read that, you read of these stones, these beautiful stones, and you think, man, this is the new Jerusalem. This is it. I, and, you know, I can't wait to see that. Could you imagine walls made out of, out of these gem stones, how beautiful that will be? But here's what's even in, in cooler. Look at verse 13. And all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And during the millennial reign, as he says, all your sons will be taught of the Lord. I don't know if you know this or not, but nearly half of Israeli Jews define themselves as as secular. Less than 20% of them consider themselves orthodox or ultra-orthodox. But during the millennium, not only will they believe in the Lord, but they will be taught by the Lord himself. Remember all the way back in, in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah spoke, Isaiah spoke of this when he said in verse 2 through 4, and it's, it's a big little chunk, but let me read this to you. It says in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 through 4, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. 
And all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And again, it all ties together into this picture of the new Jerusalem, the millennial reign of Christ, and, 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 the, and the young going to, to, to Jerusalem to be taught the word of God. So we see the literal fulfillment of verse 13 will be fulfilled during the millennial. But the spiritual principle, I think, is at work today in our own hearts, in our own lives. See, John actually quotes this verse, and Jesus actually quotes this verse in John chapter 6, when the Jews were complaining about Jesus, saying that he was the, the bread came down from heaven. And, and Jesus answered them, and he says to them, listen to this, in verse 43 and 44 of John chapter 6, he says, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Then verse 45, he says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So we now, because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, we are taught by God. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. And as we dig into God's Word, through the Word of God in our life, we are getting direct knowledge from God our Father Himself into our hearts. So we see the literal fulfillment of this verse and the spiritual principle at work today. Finally, let's look at verses 14 through 17. He says, In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work. And I've created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And the righteousness is from me, says the Lord. The spiritual principle at work here is that the enemies of the righteous are never victorious. Even if they're fiercely attacked, God will cause them to fail. God will cause them to fall either immediately or on the day of judgment. And really, this has been very literally promised to the Jews since the beginning. God's very first promise to Abraham, way back in Genesis 12, says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse and, and we see all throughout the scriptures for both the past and the future that any nation who opposes or attacks Israel incurs the wrath of God. And this will include Iran and Russia if that happens today or tomorrow or in the very near future. I love verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Yes, that speaks specifically to Israel, but it also speaks to us as believers. In Hebrew, that word for weapon refers to any tool or utensil used against a person. A weapon is anything that can be used against you for evil intent. If someone, you know, uses his car against you, it shall not prosper. If someone uses their cell phone against you, it shall not prosper. If someone uses their checkbook against you, it shall not prosper. If someone uses their clout against you, it shall not prosper. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Nothing built, sharpened, aimed at, or fired against you, your family, your church family, God's kingdom, or God's people will succeed. 
Though our enemies may look like they're winning for a while, a job may be eliminated, a child may wander far, a life may be even lost. In the end, even these tragedies will be enveloped in, in God's agenda for prospering those who are truly His. Now, why is that true? Not because you're a fierce warrior. It's because He is. Joshua 23.10 tells us, One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is He who fights for you as He promised you. Could you single-handedly chase away a thousand soldiers? Nope. Can't do it, but God can. And it's He who fights for you. He's the defender of His children. See, God takes it very seriously when someone opposes or attacks the ones that He loves. And just as their weapons will not win, neither will their words. Let's close with verse 17 here. It says, And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Have you ever been a, a target from, for hurtful words because of your, your stand for the Lord? Maybe you've experienced ridicule when you're at work because of, of your loyalty to Jesus. Maybe people have scorned you because of your stand for God's truth. Now, if you say, no, that's never happened, then that's not a good sign, okay? It's just that people, it suggests that people around you haven't noticed that you're, you're a Christian. But if you answer yes to any of those questions, then, then really think about this truth. God always wins. God always wins. Romans 16.20 previews the final round. It says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I love it. As we face the weapons and the words of our enemies, as you engage in the battles of life, we set our heart on Jesus Christ, our hope on the final outcome, it's going to end well for you and for me. It's guaranteed. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and the righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, it always amazes us, Lord, that, that, that what you wrote, Lord, it happened so prophetically, so perfect, Lord. But it shouldn't because you're such a great and awesome God. We thank you for speaking to our hearts this evening, for teaching us, Lord God, for letting us know, Lord, that, that you are there, you are our, our maker, you take care of us, Lord, that you watch out for us. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Lord, you win in the end. And because you win in the end, we win in the end. And we thank you for that, Lord God. Lord, help us to live our lives holy and set apart. To recognize what you went through upon that cross by taking every sin that we've ever committed or will commit and you put it upon yourself. Lord, I don't want any more sins of myself to go upon yourself. Help me to live a more holy life. Help us to live a more holy life. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. We give you all the praise and glory. We can't wait to be home with you in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.